1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Gender, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, your host. Today, we'll be talking to Mia Birdsong about her new book, How We Show Up, Reclaiming Family, Friendship, and Community. Mia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I wonder if you could begin today by telling us a bit about yourself.
2: Sure. Um, As far as my work goes. And I'm someone who has the privilege of doing work that very much feels like um, my purpose. I am an activist. I'm a facilitator. I'm a community curator. Um, The social justice work that I do very much sits at the intersection of race and gender and class. Um, I think I work in my focus is on social contracts. And I think of that as as kind of existing in these two spaces. One of them is about um, our systems and institutions and, you know, kind of government and things like that, things that are meant to um, provide us with the things that we need to live a life of well-being. So I do, you know, I do work around guaranteed income, for example. And that work is about, you know, kind of what those institutions and systems owe us, and then what's required of us to ensure that they give us the things that we need. Um, right now, mostly that feels like, what are the what are the barriers that exist to us um, holding those systems accountable? And then the other place that I work is is in what we owe each other and what it means to. Um, be in social contract with, you know, our neighbors, um, our communities, um, our friends, our loved ones. um, And that's really what the book is about.
1: And that leads to the next question, which is what inspired you to write How We Show Up, Reclaiming Family, Friendship, and Community?
2: So, um, you know, I'm not, writing is not actually my kind of main medium. I'm much more of an orator, And I'm not somebody who kind of had an idea for a book and, you know, had this burning desire to write it and wrote it and then tried to get someone to publish it. Um, I was actually uh, approached by my editor and she saw me speaking and um, really helped take me through a process of understanding like that there was I mean, I think I had lots of things that I wanted to say. Um, but really took me through a process of understanding, like, what was this very personal kind of inquiry that was in the back of my mind that I wanted to bring to the forefront? Um, you know, and I think like many writers, I really wrote the book that I needed to read.
1: And that, that comes across that it's very personal. Um, and that it's, it's, it reads as though
2: someone's speaking directly to us. Was that intentional in your style? Um, no, I just think that's probably the only way I know how to write. Um, you know, I, I'm not. It, it wasn't a book where I, fe- I was like, I'm going to, you know, read a bunch of academic sc- studies and scholarly papers, and and then I'm going to bestow my um, wisdom upon my audience. It was really um, me writing a journey that I was going on and, and, and wanting to understand how to, um, build deeper, um, more connected community and relationships for myself and going to the people who I saw out in the world doing that and really, you know, asking them how they did it and talking to them about it. And then the, the things that that brought up for me. So it's really, I mean, in many ways, it's just my kind of, journey through um those conversations and what I learned from them
1: and it really starts with you opening up to a very important community that you have a particular friend who creates for you. And when she calls you all, you, you just, you just go. And I actually have a friend like that. So I connected with that immediately. My friend is Lori Schneider. And when she says, you know, we're doing a retreat, I'm like, all right, I am clearing my calendar and I know what we're retreating about, but I'm going. Um, and so can you talk about, uh, is your friend's name pronounced Akaya? Yes. So you have an opening called Akaya said, and that's partly because that was the only notation in your calendar for what you were doing that weekend. Can you can you take us there and and tell us about the
2: term new universal? Sure. Um, So Akaya Winwood is she's family to me. Um, We met maybe five six years ago. Um, She's been a mentor of mine since then, and. She's just someone, I mean, she's, she's mentored to lots of people. She's a tremendously wise person. Um, She, I mean, she's hard to explain, Um, but she, so she, she and I had been talking about uh, kind of what we felt the world was needing specifically in terms of leadership and that, you know, for, hundreds of years, um, we have had a, an articulation and a standard of leadership that was very much, um, rooted in patriarchy and white supremacy. And that clearly has not been good for anyone. So we were exploring, I'd been doing, I'd been doing this, um, kind of ongoing project around black women's culture of leadership. And she and I just kind of started talking about, um, what, what it would mean to have a different standard for leadership, which was and partly like, there's a way in which white men's leadership is seen as universal, um, and that patriarchy and capitalism and white supremacy are kind of embedded in uh, dominant cultures, certainly in the United States, but in lots of other places. And that those things are just kind of seen as universal, they're accepted as, and they're normalized. Um, So we wanted to create something, a, a new version of what would be seen as universal. And her instinct was that <clears throat> by pulling together um, uh, women of color who she was in community with, we could begin to explore what that might look like. And part of what I love about her is that she very much trusts that if you create a um, intentional um, commute, like container that what happens in that will be what needs to happen. So there was no, uh, so she brought us together for, I think it was like four or five days. Um, There was no agenda. There was no um, like, there was no workshops. There was no, any. it was just like, she'd start the day with whatever was on her mind um, and invite us to share anything we wanted to. And then she would, she would end the day with whatever was on her mind and invite us to share. So she kind of created these bookends for us. And in that space, you know, we were in like a retreat center in Petaluma, in California. It was beautiful. Um, in that space, we just um, f- we created a culture with each other. We created community with each other. Some of us knew each other. Some of us didn't. Um, but because of who brought us together, there was a there was a kind of. Um, leap of faith that we took. It wasn't even a like it was it was a leap of of faith in that we didn't know it was going to happen, but there was nothing that felt like risky or unsafe about it. It felt like we were being invited into um a thing that we all knew we needed and wanted and were excited to be part of. And it's, you know, it's a little bit hard to articulate kind of what it meant for us to create this culture, but um There was, there was just a spaciousness to our time. You know, we didn't, there was no, because there was no agenda or anything we had to accomplish. We weren't checking things off of a to-do list or trying to think about, you know, where we needed to be next. Um, we, because of who brought us together and our trust in her, we, there was a kind of inherent trust that we all had for each other. So there was a way in which we held each other, um, in community, um, in a way that was deeply loving and caring, um, and generous, and being able to interact with each other that way without kind of you know the the things that uh, the, the things that we always have to bump in and kind of navigate around in you know our regular lives where we have jobs and families to take care of and you know rent to pay and all those kinds of things. Um, in the absence of that, we were we were able to kind of create something else and. It was just, it was such a, um, a powerful experience because we didn't, you know, we didn't go in with the intention of being like, we're going to create this new culture. Um, it was just what emerged because we were together and we, and we had the intention of just like being with each other and trusting each other. And, and I think all of us, um, coming from a place of recognizing that the, the culture of, of leadership, um, and, extraction and dominance that we exist in is, uh, harmful and we need to get rid of it. So I think we all had that, you know, we just have that in our, in our minds and in our hearts. Um, but it was just, it was really beautiful. And, and when I went away from it, I felt both like deeply renewed and, um, grateful for having the experience, but I also, felt like I don't want to have to leave my life in order to have that. Um, and that really like, you know, that was two or three years ago that we first gathered. And I think since then, I've really been trying to think about what is it that I can kind of, what space can I create in my everyday life with the people I love and care about to bring more of that kind of culture, um, into our, you know, into our reality.
1: And that's really a strongly recurring theme of the book is what can emerge when we come together. And in examining that, you also look at the normatives that we have to question, the standards that we have to wonder if they're working for us. And there's a lot of creating and recreating that goes into this process of coming together to make a community that sustains and renews people. And you really open with one of the main traps that prevents us from getting there right in chapter one, um, where you talk about the failure of the American dream uh, and the traps that are built into it. Can you, can you tell us nurse about that?
2: Yeah. You know, I think on its face, it is, um, the American dream narrative is such a powerful kind of inspiring thing, right? This idea that um, a single person with their, you know, whatever talents they have and their like determination can, um, achieve, um, a particular kind of happiness and success as it's laid out, you know, kind of, you know, it's the, it is a very, um, you know, it's like, it's the nuclear family, it's home ownership. It is, um, a kind of financial, um, achievement. It's, uh, being able to accumulate things. Um, but underneath that, right, and especially because, you know, if we think about the, the founding fathers and kind of um, their uh, orientation, right, when they were when they're writing our founding documents, America's founding documents, um, and they're talking about, you know, all men, like they're literally talking about men, first of all, so there's half the population that isn't included. Um, they're also talking about white people. Um, they're also talking about landowners. So they're really talking about people whose demographics match their own. Um, and that leaves out the majority of people in the country, certainly then and definitely now. Um, and we know that built into, you know, all of the, the, as I was talking about before, like if our social contract in terms of like our institutions and Um, systems, like built into all of those systems um, is uh, racism and sexism and classism. So those systems are built to create barriers of some sort to varying degrees for most people, and to really um, like smooth the way for a really small percentage of people who are male, who already have class privilege, um, who are white, and I would add, who are straight, Um, you know, and able-bodied, like all of the kind of all of the things that get privileged in our systems um, are, are built that way. So, you know, we, so we have this idea that anybody can achieve, but really, it's set up for a few people too. And part of what happens is that, the people who are, you know, black or female or started out poor are kind of held up, um, as examples to prove that America, you know, that anyone can make it in America, but really those people are exceptions. And, you know, part of what I've realized over the last, you know, probably 20 years, um, is that I am one of those exceptions, right? So I am black. I am a woman. Um, I grew up poor but I now, you know, I own my home. I'm married to a man. Uh, we, you know, make enough money to pay for tutors and go on vacation. So, you know, in, there's a version of my own story that points toward, um, the idea that it gets, I get held up, right. As like a poster child for the American dream. Um, but I recognize that, uh, I'm an exception and not because like, I'm, when I say exception, I don't mean like I'm better, right? I really mean that like I got lucky. <laughs> um, yes, I worked hard. Yes, I did well in school. But um, that really is true for a lot of people. Uh, and I just happened to like, you know, navigate through and kind of these little, these little openings um, in the systems and uh, institutions that I had to interact with and have made it to this place. And part of what is required of, um, the American dream is a kind of, um, insularity, right? It really, it really promotes this idea of individual success. It very much promotes this idea of, um, doing it yourself. And, um, it's a kind of, um, toxic individualism because it really cuts people off from our inherent interdependence our inherent need for the support and attention and care and love of other people. And I don't just mean, you know, a spouse and, you know, a couple of kids, I really mean like, the village, I mean, the tribe. Um, We are, like, our brains are wired for connection. And we live in a culture that is really antithetical to something that is fundamental about who we are as people. So for me, part of what I experienced as I became more successful, and I'm, you know, I'm doing like air quotes, um, was this kind of severing, um, and pulling away from, uh, like deep connection and community. Um, and this kind of, there's this inertia that exists around kind of like the insular nuclear family. And, um, you know, and we take pride in being able to do something ourselves without any help. Um, So part of what I feel like, you know, when this editor approached me, part of what I had been sitting in was this tension between the kind of shiny story of success that I was headed toward and what I knew in my like heart um, is actually what brings wellness and happiness, which is being in like deep um, interdependent community with other people.
1: And you talk about how it's it's almost a holy circle, the giving and receiving, that mm. y- you need both parts of that or you don't get the fullness of it for either the giver or the receiver. Um, and one story in the book that really illustrated that uh, for me was when you reached out to Mariah Mm-hmm. both in how you brought her into your, your family circle. And then when you had your deep concern about if she was not going to have enough insulin, can you talk about, um, that story?
2: Sure. So Mariah Landers is one of the most amazing people on the planet. Um, she, we met because she was my daughter's kindergarten and first grade teacher. And, um, we kind of immediately knew that we were each other's people both because we have like similar backgrounds. Both of our dads were Jamaican. Um, We were both raised by our white mothers. Um, And we both have um, a social justice orientation in the work that we do. So, and my daughter loved her, loved her. And she adored my daughter. So um, after Stella, my daughter finished first grade, I like literally, ask Mariah, I was like, will you be Stella's auntie? And can we be friends? Um, and she immediately said yes. And that began this like amazing, uh, romance in many ways of friendship. Um, she has taught me so much about art and about like how to like liberate my thinking about what I expect. Um, about what it means to navigate, um, like the white spaces that we both find ourselves in a lot. What it means to, um, be vulnerable and like push ourselves to, uh, rely on, like, like allow ourselves to trust and rely on other people. Um, and so she's she's a type one diabetic. She got diagnosed when she was like, you know, super young, and has primarily, um, managed her. Um, diabetes by herself. Uh, She has a sister who has special needs. So her mom was really focused on taking care of her sister. And Mariah um, really just like took care of herself um, around her diabetes. So she learned at a very early age, um, how to how to manage it and how to like pay attention to, um, you know, how she was feeling and track everything. And um, it occurred to me at some point, that you know, we kind of like, because we, um, there's this assumption that like part of your goal as you become an adult is to find like a partner and, you know, get married and settle down. And, um, it occurred to me that, that built into that system is a person who will, um, kind of help, you know, take care of you if you get sick, who is kind of, you know, inside of any medical stuff that you have. And that if you are unpartnered, you don't have anybody to do that, right? Like there's no kind of public model for who will be um, the person who takes care of you if you're sick or knows um, the kind of background of your medical conditions. So, you know, I was like, well, she and I are family. Like part of what needs to happen is that I need to like make sure she's okay um if something happens. So I asked her, and, and I will say I was, I was, I felt hesitant to ask um, about like being someone who she could call in a medical emergency. Um, because I know that she really like prides herself in being able to to take care of herself. Um, and it felt a little uh like butting in where I wasn't supposed to be. But I also felt like, well, I'd rather I'd rather like slightly offend her and trust that our friendship could like navigate through that. And we'd talk about it than not say anything. So I, I said, I was like, Hey, you know, does anybody like who gets called if you end up in the hospital? Um, and we had this whole conversation and, um, just about like my commitment to our relationship and that that included, um, uh, like caring for her if she needed that. Um, so she like put together a Google Doc and it has, you know, the kind of pump she has and all of her medical information and her doctors and kind of what needs to happen if she gets hospitalized. Um, and she didn't just share it with me. Like I think part of, part of what this invited her to do was to um, invite other people who she's close to to be part of like a circle, like a community of care, right? Um, so she shared it with several of us and we all know each other and have you know, at different times, like been in conversation, like, you know, so Mariah's, if her blood sugar gets low in the middle of the night, um, like I might get a phone call from her to be like, Hey, you know, call me in 10 minutes or she'll text me and one other person and say, can you do this? Um, one time that happened and the other person was really sick. So she texted me and was like, Hey, I'm really sick. Can you make sure that you're like on for this? And I was like, sure, of course. Um, so part of what she did was she actually cr- created um, she created the circle of care for herself, but she also cr- created community for those of us who are in the circle. Um, so it wasn't that just one person um, kind of was the person who would shoulder responsibility for um, showing up for her if she needed something, but that all of us could do that and we could communicate with each other um, about it. And, you know, it's not, it's not, um, you know, she's not like, we haven't had to do any do a whole lot of anything, but I think just having that in place makes all of us feel better. And of course, what it means is that, like, she's part of our circle of care, right? So, sure, I have a husband, but if he, you know, goes on a trip or you know, like whatever, just like having one person take care of you when you're sick kind of sucks. Having a community of people take care of you um, is way better. So, she's part of my circle of care now. Um, and the the thing that it that it did. Besides kind of create uh, a an explicit system for um making sure that her medical condition doesn't um and not her not having a partner and having this medical condition doesn't like make her less safe is it created um more intimacy in our relationship um just having the conversations did that knowing that um you know as she's learning to not feel um like uncomfortable with calling me in the middle of the night if she needs to, right? Like that's a thing that can be really hard, but the more she does that um, the more comfortable she is with it. And the more like the better I feel about it. And part of what I think um, all of us have come to understand is that like, I'd be pissed <laughs> if something happened to her and she didn't call me. So it's not just about, you know, her kind of being vulnerable or enough or um brave enough to reach out to me but also recognizing that like we are each other's people and there the responsibility um that exists in that kind of relationship also means that like we have a responsibility to reach out to our loved ones when we need something because um they they are invested in our wellness right like i would be mad if something happened to her and she didn't call me and not because like, I'd, my feelings would be hurt. Like, it's not about, you know, my ego. It really is that um, her well-being matters to me. Um, so that just, like, unpacking that that story for me really, um, and this shows up in a lot of places in the book, this idea of, like, asking for and receiving support. And, you know, another part of the American Dream narrative has made us just, like, allergic to asking for help. And we also think of asking for help as something that is about, you know, is about desperation, right? Like you only ask for help when you really need it. Um, And part of what I think, you know, showed up in the book, but has really been like made starkly clear um, since the coronavirus era um, has descended upon us is how important it is for us to be able to ask for help, not just when we feel like we need it, but when we feel like we could use some ease in our lives. Um, and it's really hard for us to do. So I think the other thing, the, the other thing I learned from so many of the people who I interviewed for the book was what it means to offer support. Um, you know, and it's one thing to tell people like, let me know if you need anything or I'm here for you. But that that offer requires that they identify, right? Something that they need um, then they have to kind of do this internal calculus to decide whether or not it's something that they think you can provide. And then they have to like actually make the the request. And I think if somebody is experiencing hardship, that we really need to um, lean into our instincts and our like, you know, what our hearts and minds know about our the people we're closest to, and actually offer something specific that we think would you know, make their lives easier. So, you know, a few weeks ago, kind of right after um, the uprisings happened around George Floyd's death, a friend of mine texted me and said, I would like to um, bring your family a meal. You know, I didn't, I don't need (laughs) her to feed us. Um, But she was recognizing that Um, We are in a moment that is super painful, um, particularly if you're black. Um, She knew that because of the work that I do, that I had been holding a lot of space for um, black folks, grief and pain and um, anger and anguish, and that that is um, work that I love to do, but also um, it requires a lot of energy. And she wanted to figure out how to do something to nourish me. And made this offer, it was very specific. And um, all it required of me was saying yes. Um, And she she brought us this like amazing meal, because she's a really good cook. And I just appreciated how little work I had to do to accept the support. Um, And that just like reminded me about like how important it is to try to show up for my loved ones, you know, generally, but specifically right now in ways that are really specific Um, and that require of me to like trust my instincts about what I know about who they are and what they might need.
1: And you you talk about that in the book, um, that allowing this kind of intimacy in a way where people are going to know what you need, and you're going to trust them to try to provide it, and you're going to have to give feedback on how close or far away that is from meeting your needs, um, frightens people, both because of what you know, you've named as toxic individualism, uh, as the the false narrative of the American dream that that people are striving for to their own detriment, um, but also the shame in um, saying that you need help, um, and then when we get to the conclusion, though, um, you say that being relentlessly known terrifies us, but you also think we crave the feeling of it, um, and. You you talk about how there's going to be a, some loss of control in in doing this, and also that to trust your instincts that if something in you is saying you know what don't don't ask that person that there there's value in sifting through what's serving you in relationships and what isn't. Um, can you talk about how how to have a healthy boundary and still uh, be in deep community?
2: Mm. I mean I think that that is like a lifelong process, right? It's not like you you figure out what your boundaries are and then you set them and then you're done. Um partly because I mean our boundaries shift and sometimes a boundary is not about like a specific thing but is about like an accumulation. Um so one of the things that my Therapist told so. I my therapist, who I interviewed for the book, she shows up in the book. Shauna, she's amazing. Um, She is uh, the couples therapist for me and my husband, and she's our individual therapist. And when we were in couples therapy, um, one of the things that she said to us is that um, resentment is information for you, and that kind of blew my mind because I always thought of resentment as like, like. I was like, I'm resentful because this other person is like being a jerk or being an asshole in some way. Um, so when she said like, resentment is information for you that, that specifically that a boundary has been crossed. And, and I was like, what, (laughs) that is amazing. And it is that we have said yes too many times or not said no enough. Um, and sometimes it is around something specific, but it can also be that like, it is like, okay, we've, we've, we've done it too many times and now we're at a limit. Um, so now when we're, when we're agreeing to something or we're being in some kind of um, exchange, uh, we feel resentful because it's too much. Um, so partly I feel like I've learned to like, listen to um you know, if I'm if I'm feeling like fear or um the kind of for me, the kind of like chest tightening, um like agitated sort of anxiety that happens when I feel like I'm losing control or I want to be in control of something, or I'm impatient with like the conversation that's happening because I just want it to happen the way I want it to happen. Um, that those are all signals that my like system is sending me. Um that I need to like pause, um, and like be curious about and try to understand like where they're coming from. And us- what I found usually is that they're because I have like allowed a-, a boundary to be crossed, like, you know, previously, like the day before or the week before or whatever. Um, and sometimes, right. Like the discomfort that I feel is, um, not about, or it's it's about a boundary being crossed, but it's a boundary that I've set because um, I'm afraid of that relentless, right, that, like, deep knowing. I'm afraid of um, somebody seeing me, my vulnerability, right? And, you know, the fear, I think, for me, certainly, and probably for a lot of people, is that uh, when people see our vulnerability, like, they see our, like, imperfection, they see our messiness. And we're afraid of being judged um, and we're afraid ultimately of being rejected. And um, we're afraid of like coming across as weak um, and that they'll, they'll somehow um, think less of us because of that. At the same time, like what we want is to know that we are accepted, right? We want to know that we are loved um, like wholly, not just because of our, accomplishments or the things we do for people or, um, you know, whatever we excel at, but we want to know that, that we are loved wholly, including the ways that we mess up and our flaws and our, um, you know, the times that we, that we are not, uh, kind of behaving in alignment with our integrity. Um, the times we fail, like all of those things, we want to know that, we can be whole people and the people in our lives will still love us and not reject us. Um, and that is like, that place is this, like, it's both terrifying and liberating. And I think, you know, fundamentally if like people aren't going to accept you when you are a hot mess or when you screw up, then those are not people that like actually accept you and like really care for you. Um, because we want, like, we want people in our lives who like are, 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 uh, accepting and loving of our whole selves. Um, and that doesn't mean that you can't be in relationship with those people, but it does mean that those that you might have like pretty strict boundaries with them. And I think, uh so often, I think what comes up for people is that they are in relationship in a way that, um, where they're, they're showing up because they want their whole selves accepted and the other person isn't. So then we feel, um, just hurt and like, like we're giving, we're giving too much. Right. So I think sometimes those relationships we need to, we need to pull back from them and not give as much and find the places, um, and relationships with people where we can be our whole selves and we can be, um, just like wholly held and seen and loved.
1: Can you tell us about how the Happy House is a place just like what you've been talking about and your sister-in-love Jade?
2: Harpy House, yes.
1: It's a Harpy House. I'm sorry, I apologize. That's okay. <laughs> Maybe um, my brain wanted it to be called Happy House. Happy because house, yes. when I read it, um, I thought, yes, let's
2: have more of this. Yeah. So she she lives in um the, a home with with a bunch. it's a bunch of like queer and trans folks. And um, they, for years, and, I, and let's not, you know, it's not the same. She's been there for probably five or six years. It's not the same people now than when she started. Um, but they are this, uh, they created family with each other. Um, and this is like, you know, this is like a longstanding tradition among queer folks to create um, chosen family with each other. Um, and that was, you know, one of the things that I was really clear about when I, when I wanted to, uh, research this book is that they were the experts um, on how to build and and kind of maintain family and friendship and community um, were black people were poor people were queer people were sex workers were people with disabilities um, all people who experience marginalization in some way and um, who have been kind of cast. As broken or you know, uh, just othered in some way, in a way that that has cast the way that people create family and community as as fundamentally like dysfunctional. When in fact, um, my experiences from my own communities and what I've witnessed in others' communities is that um, people who are who experience marginalization build the most powerful, loving, inclusive, um, boundary, expanding, uh, models of family and friendship and community that we have. Um, and that is not to say that like everybody does and that they aren't like a hot mess in the ways that like, you know, most families have some nonsense happening. Um, but that those are the, those are the communities that I see consistently, um, modeling what it really should look like. Uh, so, um, yeah. Jade's lived in this amazing kind of household and really been like a core person, um, in terms of creating the culture of the household. Right. And I mean, in many ways, I feel like she, she, uh, um, has replicated some of what I feel like, um, the new universal folks created with Akaya, which is that like, here's an environment. And in her, her instance, it, it is, uh, you know, a place-based one where, um, people are showing up for each other in a way that is, uh, familial where, um, conversations about, you know, like conflict and harm, um, happen in a way that is not about, um, people being disposable, but about, um, supporting people in their accountability and that there is an expectation that if you're going to be part of this community of people, that you have to be able to have those conversations. You have to like, you have to like, challenge either not be conflict avoidant or like work past your conflict avoidance. Um, there's a lot of uh, self awareness, I think, that's built in that community where people are both aware of kind of their own stuff and what comes up for them when they're. I mean, because there's there's like you know there's this is fo- these are folks who struggle financially. There's definitely like a lot of um, folks have a lot of mental illness. So there's a lot going on for the, of like trauma for the people um, in that community. But there's also this commitment to um, caring for each other and being a a place of stability for each other that I just find extraordinary.
1: I was really struck by the difference between when she arrived and where it came to pretty quickly that the there's a very vivid description of how (laughs) she arrives and it's just, it's not clean. It's not tidy. It doesn't feel homey. Uh, I think more than
2: it not being like clean it's, it was that like, it was, it was like the people who lived there weren't, weren't, they were just like literally they would like go to their own rooms and then Mm -hmm. they'd like go to the bathroom and the kitchen, but they did not, the common spaces were unused and they did not like really talk to each other. Um, So she did this thing that was like the I mean, she cleaned it, but it really was about like, like, you know, there were like jar tops from many, many years ago, because as people kind of came in and out of the house, stuff got left. And since it since it like, you know, people who were there were like, that's not mine, so I can't do anything with it. So she really just like took a little bit of ownership Um, of the space and made it something that she felt like everybody would like. And then she like, you know, made soup and (laughs) right. Um, Which of course she learned from her mother who, and, and like my mother in love, Jackie is a stellar, a stellar soup maker. Um, And, you know, she, she, yeah, she did these things that really make a space feel like home for folks. So it was like, you know, the, it, be, it looking and feeling good, um, there being food that was going to be shared. Um, and then I think just the way that she invites people to uh, be in relationship with her, her and also with each other um, really shifted that dynamic. You know, and I think right now, like, again, kind of during COVID, I know so many folks who are living with roommates, right? But not people who they are in relationship with, really. And it's been really challenging because they don't have a way to talk about um, like sheltering in place together and kind of like what their guidelines are for what their behaviors are going to be. So, you know, I feel like there's a there's a bunch of folks who have experienced a tremendous amount of anxiety because the person they live with is like going over to other people's houses and like hanging out and then coming home um, and putting them in danger, right? And when you don't have... Um, you know, and that is like, that is the toxic individualism that I'm talking about. It shows up not just in our inability to like ask for help for ourselves, but in a a disregard for the other people that we affect, right? There's this idea that um, I as an individual have like complete autonomy and agency and I get to do whatever I want, um, as opposed to recognizing our like interconnection And that my behaviors are not just going to affect me. They're going to affect other people, especially if you live with people during a pandemic. Um, But because we don't have um, a, we certainly don't have a dominant culture that um, reflects that. And you can see that in the ways that people are behaving um, right now, going to, you know, going out without masks and um, and getting together with folks and then go, you know, bringing, um whatever it is they might you know bringing coronavirus into their households or spreading it to other people um so she you know i think part of what she uh demonstrates is this this insistence on recognizing that our behaviors um are not just our own and we do have a responsibility um, to, to recognize the ways in which we impact other people and to be thoughtful about that. Um, in part, because that is what we want them to do for us. Um, you know, I feel like I'm, I go out and I wear a mask, you know, partly for my own protection, but also to protect other people because I don't want to be responsible for, um, causing harm to other human beings. And, I'm, and what I want, right, and this is, again, this is the social contract, what I want is for other people to recognize that their behaviors affect me and to be doing the same.
1: And that's a recurring theme in the book, which is this overriding question of how do we live a life that's less depleting? And you, know, the example of the masks is, is less depleting on our immune systems, it's less depleting on our medical care systems when we can take a, a a proactive step like that, um, and how we deal with hardships. And you know, as you brought up the pandemic, that's a hardship we're all facing. Even the people who who are going out and trying to go about as normal, um, there's still there's a global hardship. And in that chapter, um, you say the ability to hold space for another's experience is critically important, and you say that holding that space is not about giving advice or about fixing anything. Can you talk about those lessons and experiences that, that formed your chapter on hardship and, and tell us about that.
2: Yeah. Let me just first say, I have a, like dealing with other people's um, grief and pain. I find like it's, I find very difficult Um, I am, it makes me uncomfortable. Um, I want to fix it. I want it to stop. Um, and I think first, you know, my first lesson around that really was with parenting. Um, and, and honestly, it was like reading a parenting book that talked about kind of how you deal with, you know, uh, a hurt kid. There was some, I don't know if it was an article or a book, but, um, I remember like it, what I read was, was about, um, Acknowledgement, right? Um, Not saying, you know, if my son like falls and hurts himself, not saying you'll be okay or um, going immediately to fixing it, but saying like that really hurt, didn't it? Right. And just acknowledging that something um, hard has happened and then just sitting and allowing him to feel whatever he's going to feel, um, often, which is like uh, kind of, you know, he needs to cry. And that when we don't allow, right when we go immediately to fixing um it cuts off uh, the experience of pain um a, really a discharge of pain or grief that people are having and if those those feelings don't aren't allowed to to be felt right then they just kind of get internalized and come out in funky ways later um so part of what I really feel like I I saw and heard from other people was how important it was to just like, create the container for them to feel whatever they were feeling and to not try to make them feel better, um, to not try to change what they were experiencing, but really just to witness it. And, and sometimes that meant like sitting in silence, um, and just like, you know, nodding occasionally when they said something. And I mean, that's another thing I feel like we're often really uncomfortable with is just silence, um, so you know part of what I saw um both in in people's stories but also when I witnessed um you know other people's hardship and saw their communities supporting them was really you know people definitely you know when it was, comes to death like people definitely showing up with like food and you know company but also really was just this acknowledgment of what what people were experiencing and this um this uh just really like wrapping their arms just like really widely and strongly around folks and just letting them be in that space of of like love and protection um, so they could just feel whatever it was they were feeling because grief is like utter wreckage. <laughs> um, but if you are not doing that with other people, right? I mean, it's a very lonely experience, but like if you don't have community holding you, Um, there's just something really untenable about it. Um, you know, part of, so there were the stories that, that I, I heard and witnessed that I felt like gave me, um, really good models of what it means to be, um, in community with people when they're experiencing hardship or grief. But there were also, um, a couple of stories that made it clear to me how important it is to have community. Um, while I was writing the book, I had these two experiences where, um, men, both of whom were white, uh, like one of, so one of them, I was on the phone with them because he makes this thing that I use for my chickens. And we were getting, we were about to get off the phone and he said like something about how he would redesigned whatever it was. And it would have come out sooner, except his wife had died. And, you know, it was a very like intimate revealing thing for him to say to a complete stranger who really was just like trying to get some customer service from him. And I paused and just invited you know, like in a way that invited him to say more. And we were on the phone for half an hour and he talked to me about his wife's death and um, therapy and how hard it had been for him and his children. And what was super clear from um, our conversation was that he had no one. There was no one um, supporting him through that. Um, and there was another man um, who was like fixing something at a house I was staying at and like just like invited himself onto the porch where I was sitting and talked to me about his sick wife who was dying. And again, he, I just it was very clear to me that he did not have any people um, who were gathering him up and like ready to care for him through this kind of process of losing his wife, but then also after she died. Um, and I was just so aware of like, you know, compared to, um, other experiences that I have had myself or that I've watched with other people who have had loved ones die. Um, just how stark, how starkly different, um, these men's experience was because they didn't have any people.
1: The lack of village. Yeah. And you, you talk, um, about many ways to make a village. One is, um, the the group home, the boarding home that, that Jade has and started bringing people out of their rooms with the soup and continues to by putting on pots of coffee. Um, and another is uh, when Akaya gathers people. Um, you also talk about the Black Women's Freedom Circle. Um, and you talk about the things you've learned from queer communities about queering friendship. And again and again, as you give us all of these examples, you are very clear to say that this is not uh, permission for appropriation. Mm -hmm. This is about finding our intersectionality, uh, about our interconnectedness um, and about how these articles that tell you to get another gadget and to do some more self-help cannot replace a village. Um, And you talk about praise of aunties and of sister friends. Um, Can you talk about what those are, um, and how those are essential to village building.
2: Well, um, so I have this group of black women, um, that we've met monthly for four or five years now. Um, I started it with my friend Amaka because we both were feeling, um, just that like there were, you know, black women kind of in our orbit who had, um, died or were getting sick or just experiencing, um, illness. And we were both very clear that so much of what they were experiencing had to do with like, you know, living in a society that is racist and sexist, um, that that does, uh, damage to our bodies, um, as well as our kind of hearts and minds. And that, um, no one was going to fix any of that for us Uh, and that we really needed to create um, a community of care for ourselves. And part of that was really about like having a place to um, unlearn um, what we'd been taught by patriarchy and white supremacy and capitalism about, you know, where our value was or how we should be in the world or, you know, kind of what our purpose was. Um, But it also was really just to like have a community of black women um to practice joy with and celebrate with and be funny with um and create safety with and to like be sad with and grieve with um and you know we are that is a familial group of people right they're not they're varying degrees of closeness in it but there's a way in which we collectively um, show up for each other. That is, uh, that feels like, you know, feels like what I imagine, you know, a village does, right? Like somebody may not be your best friend, but, um, you are, you have been part of their lives and contributing to their lives in a way that makes you, um, feel responsibility for them. And the same is true of the people in the group for you. And that kind of, uh, Oh, I'm sure there's some like physics term for it, right? Like the, it is this um, energy that is becomes kind of self-generating, and the the as you as you kind of put into it, you receive more from it. And it is one of the things that I think um, can create ease in our lives, like having a circle of people like that. And it doesn't have to be like a specific gender, but I think having um, a kind of collective that we are engaged in regular, um, community with, and, um, just being together. Um, and even, you know, and now that, that, that COVID is here and we're not gathering in person, we actually started gathering twice a month instead of once a month, because that felt like it was important. Um, and we, it's just such a restorative generative space for all of us. Um, there's something about that community that allows us to be, to experience a kind of relief and safety that we don't get many other places. Um, And it, and, and there's a trust, right? Like we really trust that the other people are going to be there for us. And partly it's because it's not a single person. Um, You know, going back to the Mariah story, I think part of what she did that was so brilliant is that when I, asked if I could be a support person for her, she invited other people um, into that group. Um, I think one of the reasons that I have experienced so much kind of reluctance and anxiety around other people's trauma and grief and pain is because I approach it as an individual, as opposed to thinking about like who, if I, if if a loved one of mine is grieving, like who can I be in community with to support that person? So I'm not doing it by myself. Um, and black women's freedom circle really has, has taught me a lot about what that looks like. And, you know, and it's, it's a thing that it's not like, it's very easy, right? Like we just, we just called up (laughs) our, our black women friends and we're like, Hey, we're going to do this thing. Do you want to join? And they were like, yes. Um, so there've been like 20 of us that have, have been meeting for years now. Um, and it's just, you know, it is, it is one of the most kind of grounding things that I have in my life.
1: And another example of community, uh, intentional community is um, something that you talk about in chapter seven, a gathering and a calling home, the remedies are in our kitchens. Um, And you talk about welcoming people to the table in a specific group that's really uh, doing that very well called the PKC. Can you tell us about that model of community?
2: Yes. (laughs) So People's Kitchen Collective is amazing. It is one of the, like, Oh, I'm such a huge fan. Um, so they are, there's three folks, um, in PKC, Saqib, Sita and Jocelyn. And, um, you know, they really Saqib started, uh, people's kitchen many years ago, and then they kind of became a collective a few years after that. And it's really been a, like a political organizing and political education tool. Um, They work with um, various like grassroots, informally organized groups of folks who have, you know, who like sometimes just need to raise money and they create these incredible um, meals that are like they're thoughtful and like it's not just like they cook some food. It really is like they're thinking they're they're thinking about like given what this organization is or this group of people wants, like what is the food that um, is reflective of the work that they do? Um, who are the um, people who can kind of come and help prepare this meal? Um, who needs to be invited to the table so that um, whatever change they're looking in the for in the world can happen? Um, and they're, they're super thoughtful about like, you know, both where the food is grown um how who is taking care who is who is like creating it um who's making the meal um how it's served who's eating it and then kind of like what comes after um and there uh the culture that they've created right i think this is another place where i feel like i see a group of people creating culture because there's a whole there's a crew of us who have been volunteers for many years and in fact we have like i think monthly um, Zoom meetings just with the volunteers because we're not doing meals right now just so we can like continue to be in community with each other. Um, and that, the, the, the kind of like culture that they've created both for the people who they work with to create meals, the people they create them for, and then the people who kind of come to the table and eat them really is, um, it is a, is a kind of welcoming that I find extraordinary, right? So everyone is welcome to the table. And, um, and there's an expectation that is set in that welcoming about how you show up right so one of uh, one meal that we did um we could not get our we could not serve ourselves so the the food was put on the table um and we had to um like the person next to us was was the person who was going to put the food on our plate and then we would then in turn put the food on the plate of the person next on the other side of us um and there was something to so uh like a little bit uncomfortable, but like boundary breaking about that process because it meant that like you know I had to tell like when I get my own food, like I know exactly what I want and how much of it I want, and I can if there's like a plate of veg- a thing of vegetables right I can like skip the zucchini if I want to, and just but like so so you're asking somebody else to do that for you, and they it we required a kind of um again like a little bit of like. Uh, intimacy um, to instruct this other person on how to like put food on your plate. Um, Because it's such, I feel like plating your food is such a personal thing when it's like, you know, um, when it's something you're meant to, you know, we kind of assume we're going to get ourselves. And, and then like, if we wanted more, we could not get it ourselves, we had to ask somebody. And again, it required us to um, kind of push against our discomfort with asking somebody to do something for us, because it wasn't that we couldn't do it ourselves, right? It's not that we like, were incapable of it. It is that we were being invited to build these um, threads of connection with other folks by asking for their help. Um so that's just like, you know, I feel like that example of kind of how they they do this work is really powerful. Um, you know, and I think they also recognize that like our our bodies need to be nourished, our spirits need to be nourished, um, our minds need to be nourished. And that in doing so, right, when we feel like um, there is abundance, when we feel like we are being cared for, our um, defenses go down, right? Our minds are open to receiving um, information that might push us a little bit to think more deeply about um our politics um so it's just it's really like a brilliant strategy, but it is a deeply like loving, caring, and genuine one as well
1: nourishing in the full sense of the
2: term exactly
1: and in the few minutes we have left, I want to make sure we can talk a, at least a bit about chapter eight, which is we can't build safety without community and It's about healing, repair, and accountability. And just one of the ways that you illustrate that is when you talk about transformative justice and your friend who has a similar first name, Mia, and her role in that. Can you share that story with us?
2: Yeah. So let me just say, let me just be um, super transparent here. Um, My entry point into activism was through abolition. Um, And that was in 1998. So I have been... um, a supporter of and activist around um, ending policing, prisons, and surveillance for a long time. Um, I think that certainly my focus has largely been on what it is we wanted to dismantle, um, and only more recently on what it is we need to build. Um, because it's not just about ending those things, it actually is about like what do we put, what do we what do we put in place um, of those things. And um, part of what Mia Mingus does, um, she's a transformative justice practitioner. She's one of the um, founding members of the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective. Um, Is she recognizes that uh, if we are going to like that abolishing prisons and policing doesn't mean that harm doesn't happen. Right. Human beings, all of us (laughs) experience harm and all of us perpetrate harm. Um, to some degree. And the work that she does is about addressing harm in ways that don't create more harm. Um, You know, one of the ways in which she talks about why we want to end policing in prisons is because those are ways of addressing harm that create more harm, Um, both for the people who are perpetrating the harm, but also for the communities that they come from. Um, And they don't create transformation, um, which is the other piece, like she's really committed, she and other transformative justice um, practitioners are committed not just to addressing the kind of um, experience of harm that someone, you know, that someone might uh, have, and supporting them in their healing. But they really want to address the person who has perpetrated the harm, because if it's not addressed, um, there's no, there's no um, kind of mechanism for them to not continue to create harm. So their their focus really is on ending violence. And if we're going to do that, we can't just focus on the people who experience violence. We really need to also focus on the people who are perpetrating it. Um, And that is really about accountability. Um, And accountability is not about punishment. Accountability is about um, self-reflection. Accountability is about apology. Accountability is about repair. And accountability is about changed behavior. Um, and Mia is, um, has been doing, and she's a, she primarily works around sexual assault and she's a survivor herself and she's been doing this work for a really, really long time. And I just, you know, I feel like I'm sitting at her feet and really learning, um, and being a student of transformative justice because it's not something that only applies to kind of things that we have classified as crime, but really, applies to how we be in community with each other. Um we have such a uh a kind of gut reaction to when harm happens we want to like end relationship or um kind of banish people um from community. And that is I mean sometimes we can't, right? Like if we're talking about uh people who we depend on in some way or people who um We, our communities rely on, like we need people to uh, be accountable for their actions and repair harm they've done and we need them to change. Um, And that's much harder work, right? When, if we, if we kick somebody out of the tribe, then um, they go someplace else and they might keep doing whatever it was they were doing. Um, But we haven't really addressed what it was that caused the harm in the first place. Um, You know, part of it is, is recognizing that harm doesn't occur in a vacuum, that we have we're all responsible for, kind of for creating cultures of violence and harm for creating cultures of um that allow and stand by when harm happens um and that we all need to be working on uh our own accountability one of the things that mia said to me that just like kind of blew my mind was that if you're not actively creating um a community of accountability for yourself, then you're actively living an unaccountable life. And part of that is thinking like, you know, I think we all, we all can kind of easily think of people who in our, in our lives who we would call upon if we experienced harm, right? Like the people who would, who would do the listening, the people who would help us um, process the people who would, um, you know, just like hold our like grief and tears and whatever it is that's hard about whatever the harm was, people who would listen to us vent. Um, but we, very few of us think about who is it that I would call upon if I, if I caused harm. Right. So if I, um, you know, was, if I lied or did something, um, you know, if I was a jerk to, you know, one of my kids or my husband, like, like who is it that I would talk to, (laughs) Who would help me process that harm and be and help me be accountable to my myself and my actions. Um, and certainly, um, I think very few of us think of, of who we have in our lives, who if we did something um, violent, right, who we could call to help us be accountable. But part of what Mia is saying is like, violence and harm happen in community all the time. And we don't prepare ourselves for it. We don't kind of create the kinds of of relationships that we need, um, where we can like show up with our shame and our guilt, um, and, and be witnessed and held, but also supported in, in being accountable for whatever we've done. And that has really shifted so much of how I think about my relationships. And I now have people who I, and I've told them this, I'm like, you are one of the people who I would like to be able to like circle up with if I screw up and hurt somebody. Um, and those conversations have been, again, like all of these conversations create intimacy in those relationships and they build, um, they kind of strengthen the fabric of the community that I have. And I'm so, um, grateful to be on this journey of, of building that kind of community for myself.
1: Thank you so much for talking with us today and, and being on the show. Um, we have been talking about how you show up. Reclaiming family, friendship, and community. My guest today was Mia Birdsong. Thank you again for being here. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.